in hell. A look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live Season 2, Episode 12, starring Ruth Gordon, originally aired on January 22nd, 1977. Hello, my name is Keith, and welcome to Episode 212, I suppose, with Ruth Gordon and her musical guest, Chuck Berry. Um, with me, as always, my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Keith. How are you today? I'm doing well. And joining us tonight, back after a short sabbatical, definitely our most prolific third chair, it's Chili. Hello, Chili. Hello, hello. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Hey, Chili. Hello, Matt. Yeah, so you last joined us for Paul Simon, George Harrison, which is, uh, of course, on our YouTube feed and over at Podbean as well. Please like, share, subscribe, let people know we're out there. We are getting some nice feedback through different channels. If you want to uh, follow along on our journey, the easiest way is to subscribe and to get the notifications. Be one of the thousands. Our version of Hulkamaniac. (laughs) The Rooster Boosters. (laughs) Tonight, we have Ruth Gordon, we have Chuck Berry. What did you guys know about uh, Ruth Gordon going into this? We'll talk about Chuck a little bit later. I knew nothing. Uh, I know slightly more than nothing. I know her probably best from Rosemary's Baby. I think she may have won the Oscar for that one. Well-deserved. And I know she is the star of Harold and Maude, which is probably the number one movie I keep telling myself I have to watch, but have just never gotten around to watching yet. Yeah, I, I remember Rosemary's Baby. And also her, her one of her guest spots on Newhart and uh, Taxi. I remember those as well. But yeah, the other biggie was Harold and Maude, which I saw a very long time ago. But it, it doesn't ever stick out to me as, you know, one of the, uh, the top films to, to go back and see again. So I'll give you a brief bio. So Ruth Gordon becomes the first of two hosts that were born in the 19th century. She was 80 years old at this point, and she had been a f- uh, film, silent film actor theater actor and screenwriter she got nominations as a screenwriter for a double life and for adam's rib she went on to get acting nominations for a film called inside daisy clover but she eventually won it for rosemary's baby and got another nomination i believe for harold and maude by this point she was making a lot of tv appearances as well as uh, the odd film spot at this point in time in 1977 She was the spunky old lady, and every generation has their spunky old lady that does TV and movies, and everybody really seems to like their spunky old ladies, your Jessica Tandys and your Betty Whites, if you will. But uh, typically these folks had uh, pretty stellar careers that to some extent gets overshadowed by their run as a spunky old lady. So the cold open. We are in, quote-unquote, Lauren's office. It actually looks like a hallway with a big sheet hung on the side. John Belushi's doctor comes in with Jane Curtin. Lauren is refusing to put Belushi in the show because he's in rough shape from his leg injury last week. The doctor insists that Belushi has to perform tonight. Gilda wheels in a rather comatose-looking Belushi, and the doctor says he must perform because the doctor has to get paid, and if he's not paid, he'll have to cut off Belushi's drug supply. This wakes Belushi out of his stupor in time to give the Live from New York. And this is actually John Belushi's first Live from New York. I found this was kind of funny, but knowing how things turn out, it was it was rather tragic, actually. Yeah, I don't know if this uh, 
aged as well. Maybe it was funnier at the time. And, you know, in five years' time, he might be saying the same thing about, like, Pete Davidson jokes or something. Who knows? But as it is right now, it was a one joke, and they kept it quick. So... No harm, no foul. I mean, I definitely cringed when I heard it. Uh, I, I did think it was kind of cute and funny, and I, I liked his delivery, and that part was fine. But yeah, hearing him perk up for his drugs was, uh, ugh. I mean, what do you say? It was a cringe moment for me, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Lauren's shirt is one of the ugliest shirts I've ever seen as well. <laughs> Point of order. So we go to the opening, and uh, for the first time ever, Bill Murray actually has a card and uh, a credit there. So this is uh, Bill's second episode. Kind of neat and yet kind of weird seeing a new face in the in the title at the beginning, eh? It is kind of funny thinking about the fact that, you know, it, it could be argued that Murray might have the best career out of anybody out of SNL. To think that he was the first replacement they brought in, you really couldn't ask for much better. So we go to the monologue, and this is a very brief monologue. This is almost like a uh, a line of dialogue that isn't responded to. Um, it's Ruth Gordon comes out and she says after 61 years of acting, she's ready to be a not ready for primetime player. This woman is 80. She has tons of energy. She is obviously ready to rock. But this monologue is painfully short. There's nothing to comment on. Good for her. She had energy and she kind of got you thinking this could be something of an episode as far as let's get right to her. Yeah, a bit of a non-monologue. Uh, I, I will say she she does seem to have energy and whatnot, but uh, I'm, I'm worried already. I'm not going to lie. I'm worried, fellas. So we go to our first ad. I, I actually sighed fuck as this came up. It's that goddamn Marine ad. It's uh, it's a repeat. It wasn't good the first time. It's not good this time. It's out of touch. It's silly. And it was an old joke then. So this is the one where Garrett is trolling the streets as a Marine looking for a fella. And then it says Marines were looking for a few good men. My note for this one is Marine ad with Garrett dot dot dot. So is he gay? Question mark. There's no joke to it. And if there is a joke, it was probably old by the time this came out. Yeah, there was. It was the uh, look. Looking for a few good men joke. It's just like uh, the Mounties getting their man in the end, you know, just a play on words on the slogan. Nah, nothing to it. Yeah, and I certainly didn't like it anymore this time. I really hate when they do reruns. It's so lazy. Come on. I hate when they do reruns this early in the show. I mean, this is the spot for the new commercial. The rerun can come later. I don't mind the rerunning commercials. I never did. But my God, don't put a shitty old one on this early. Yeah, you're right. This is the hot spot. You know, we got some fresh yeah. viewers here. This is where Quarry was, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> so the next bit is a musical bit, and it's called Me, and it was written by Marilyn Suzanne Miller, uh, Cheryl Hardwick, and uh, possibly Paul Schaefer as well. And it features Lorraine as Barbara Streisand, who sings a love song about herself and her own career. I uh, really love Lorraine Newman, and I really don't like Barbara Streisand, so uh, this was up my alley. The dimmed lights made it so much better because if you think back to the other serious performances that have been on this show this was presented exactly like that i was kind of taken aback when she said sucks which seemed like a word that might not be allowed on tv (laughs) and also something that surprised me that they uh that they even said back then the audience loved it it was definitely a touch longer than necessary but i thought this was pretty stellar uh great work by lorraine yeah i agree pretty much with everything you said there It seemed particularly, even for SNL, who can be a bit biting, it seemed particularly bitter towards Barbara Streisand beyond just 
she's a celebrity who takes herself too serious. But I mean, Lorraine was great. Mocking a Star is Born featuring, you know, recent SNL alum, Chris Christopherson, who killed it on his episode. Just how could they do that to somebody who showed up so prepared and so professional when he was on the show? I don't know how they could do it, but uh, I did like the fact that she referenced the beautician who cut her last film as bad as her hair. That was, uh, I did a bit of research. That was a reference to a man named John Peters, who they referenced later in this episode, who, uh, you know, he was a joke back in 1977, but John Peters went from being Barbara Streisand's beautician to being an executive producer in Hollywood who produced or executive produced films such as Caddyshack, the 1989 Batman, The Color Purple, Wild Wild West, Rain Man, the Gary Busey classic DC Cab, and the 2018 version of A Star is Born. So I had some hits, eh? Yeah, and uh, if you ever listen to the podcast, uh, How Did This Get Made? Kevin Smith tells a good story about how he met John Peters when they were considering doing the 1990s Nicolas Cage Superman movie. It's a really funny story. Go check it out yourself. But he talks about how John Peters wanted to do a giant robot spider to fight Superman. And uh, when the time came, they couldn't get it in because the movie was never made. So that giant robot spider worked its way into the Will Smith Wild Wild West. (laughs) Sounds like some Ed Wood shit there. No, it's a a funny story. Check it out. Kevin Smith, whenever he was on How Did This Get Made? We give them a shout out. They have to give us one. (laughs) I actually think this is, I thought ours was the only podcast. So that, that's alarming. Lorraine, uh, like you guys said, was just fantastic here. My favorite part uh, of this, yeah, I found it a little surprisingly scathing. I just loved the production of it. It just oozed 70s. Her dress, her hair, the lighting. This was one of the most 1970s things I have ever seen. So I really, really liked looking at it. It definitely went on too long. But, uh, I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off Lorraine, so she certainly did her job. Just wish it was shorter. But, yeah, great to look at. It was also kind of refreshing, too, to see a Barbara Streisand impression that wasn't just, let's put a giant fake prosthetic nose on somebody and have them warble. It was actually a good impression instead of an over-the-top impersonation. Yeah. So our next sketch is the Latella sisters at home. So this is Emily Latella and her sister, Essie Latella, played, of course, by Gilda and Ruth Gordon. And they're enjoying some breakfast at home, and they get really excited about toast, and they talk a lot about toast. Uh, And then they go to talk about what Emily's weekly editorial is going to be about. But Emily hasn't come up with anything yet, so they talk about a few possibilities, burning tissues, transcendental medication, and a, a couple of them that are, a, well, one in particular that it, it uses a word I don't want to use. So Essie is basically exactly like Emily. And then she goes on to do a Emily bit about flea elections in China. This might be a surprise, but I actually kind of liked this one. Uh, it was Ruth Gordon as an, it was an excellent choice to play Emily's sister, though I wondered why they didn't go with mother. And it freshened up Emily a bit, and I was kind of pro-Emily for the next 20 minutes or so. I, I have a feeling I might be on the minority there. What are you thinking, fellas? Well, let's see where Chili lands, because I thought this was really trashy. Uh, I thought it moved with the pace of cold molasses. It was just, it just seemed oddly timed, like it crawled, and their delivery was was off with each other or something. Uh, I didn't understand 
uh, Ruth half the time. Uh, so I, I was like, is she doing a voice? Is she having a stroke? I, I didn't. I didn't get it, and I didn't think the jokes were there. Yeah, there were some jokes there, but the same friggin' jokes that we've heard so many times before. I was pretty cross when the sketch was on, I must say. Yeah, I'm with Matt on this one. It was awful. I won't lie, I did laugh at the line, uh, flea erections instead of free elections. Ruth is already 80 years old, and she was playing older, like she's doing like an old lady voice, which kind of defeats the purpose and made it seem really slow and just unrehearsed, and it was just not... Good. It was a very slow sketch. So our next bit is The Tomorrow Show, and this one was written by Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. So Dan is back as Tom Snyder, and he talks about peanut butter in the White House. His guest is Dino De Laurentiis, the producer of King Kong. And uh, De Laurentiis says he's in a wheelchair because he was wishboned by uh, Jeff Bridges and King Kong. Dan Aykroyd gets to refer to Dino De Laurentiis as a ruthless monkey pimp. De Laurentiis says Geppetto made Kong's face. This sketch, I love Dan Aykroyd's Tom Snyder, and I uh, actually wasn't too turned off by Dino De Laurentiis uh, as played by John Belushi. The problem for me with these sketches is that they work better when Snyder is the goofball and the guest is a straight man. I found Belushi was trying to either upstage or outperform Aykroyd here. The, the work suffered. I mean, both guys were good, but there were two guys kind of trying to be the funny man. Yeah, this was the second abysmal sketch in a row for me. I'm not familiar with Tom Snyder, so I don't get the intricacies of Aykroyd's impression. Belushi was just atrocious. Like half of his lines, it seemed like he delivered into his own shoulder. And there were a few times where it seemed like he was clearly adding lines where they weren't necessarily needed to the point where I almost wondered if like, if Ruth collapsed backstage and someone was giving him a sign to like drag it out or something like that, because <laughs> there were just certain points of this where it was not a long sketch, but it dragged on. And I think 90% of that was Belushi just realizing he wasn't getting jokes from maybe what was written on the page and just trying to elaborate to hopefully this will get the audience laughing and very little hit. I thought I thought that a couple of times during the episode. Like, are they stalling? Uh, the the timing of the whole thing was off. Maybe the show was short, but uh, I was really excited when I saw this started because I loved the last Tom Snyder sketch, and I loved Dan Aykroyd doing Tom Snyder. And I, I thought John doing the the sleazy producer was okay, but then it just kept going. It didn't feel right, and I guess that makes perfect sense with what Keith said. Uh, it wasn't about Tom Snyder enough he was just kind of there I, he a couple of times he, he did the laugh that really got me i like to shout out to the crew member just classic tom snyder but yeah it couldn't uh it couldn't carry itself all the way through it's your point chili it looked like Ackroyd tried to end it at least twice and belushi went off on a tangent yeah he twice mentioned massage parlors wasn't it yeah massage parlors even belushi had a bit where he kept talking about the original king kong it felt like maybe it was like a one sentence joke that he carried on for a solid two paragraphs of how the original King Kong was hard to work with. And So we go to our first musical appearance tonight, and it's uh, Chuck Berry. He is the father of rock and roll, uh, born 1927 in St. Louis. Life was pretty bleak and boring for Chuck until he got a call from his cousin Marvin who was in the midst of listening to a new sound at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Barry copied the sound of the unknown guitarist, and rock history was made. Well, you still have my notes for this. So. Oh, shit, sorry. Uh, I'm actually going to be brief about this one, because you, you can't really talk about Chuck Berry in two minutes. 
I mean, rock and roll didn't show up one day. Somewhere between Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry is the point in time where blues became rock. There's others that helped it along the way, but Berry, especially when it comes to the focus of songs, the structures of songs, and just the prominence of the electric guitar, he gets a big piece of that credit pie. Ranked fifth in the Rolling Stones' greatest artist list, Charter Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. So tonight he plays Johnny B. Good. It was written in 55, released in 57. Could just say it hit eight on the Billboard charts, which is true, but that's quite an understatement. Barry is performing with his band and also the uh, SNL band is, is in on it. To me, this was just a pleasure to watch. It was Chuck Berry doing his stuff. He you know, was doing the nostalgia tour, but he was definitely putting everything into it. And, uh, you know, he gave us the full gamut of what he did. I was really, really pleased with this. Yeah, me too. Had a lot of energy. It, again, it felt like not more of the usual. They, so they seem to be trying to mix it up musically a little, which I appreciate. The energy and the, the life he brought to the performance was great. It's a quick classic. Thumbs up for me. Yeah, I was a little nervous at first. I mean, you have... You know, acclaimed pervert Chuck Berry, who showed up dressed like a booth from Mexicala Roses. But I was thinking like, OK, well, he's a legend. He it's it's carried on. He's a true talent. But my concern at first was it's a guy from the 50s doing something on SNL, which is, you know, especially at the time, very hip, edgy, cutting edge. But I was happy to say the audience enjoyed it. And I guess, you know, I still think of SNL even this t- time frame, you know, 40 years ago being so much more modern than I think of the 1950s. But like just for uh, just for like context, like him showing up in 77 to do this song that was popular in the 50s would be the equivalent of like if Avril Lavigne showed up on SNL now and did like her first couple songs. Would it seem mm-hmm. weird to some people? Yes. But for the people in that age group, they would think like, oh, this is awesome. Like, you know, I, I remember this song. Like, it's that. And it worked out really, really well. And, you know, Chuck, can, he still got it. To your point, the song was 19 years old then. And Hit Me Baby One More Time is, I think, 23 years old now. It seems much different, even though, same thing, time frame wise, it's probably the same. But Desi Arnaz doing Babalu. It's the same time frame going from 50s to the 70s. Yeah, it's like Kelsey Grammer doing toss salad and scrambled eggs. You know? <laughs> so we're off to weekend update. So it begins with Jane putting on some perfume that she doesn't seem to like the smell of. Goes to a couple of sight gags. The first one is one of uh, Betty Ford consoling Jerry Ford. And then he turns his back and she's laughing at him. And uh, then there's Jimmy Carter with Amy sitting on his lap and uh, they with her mouth wide open and they refer to her as a Amy Carter lookalike ventriloquist dummy. We then go to Lorraine Newman as a reporter and she's with Ruth Gordon, who's playing Miss Lily Carter, the down to earth, progressive and very spunky old lady, mother of Jimmy Carter. Uh, Gordon did a pretty good impression of her in a way. Uh, she kind of looked enough like her, I suppose. Then we have a weird joke uh, that was kind of applicable today actually about two people robbing a cafe and getting away with two cups of coffee that have a street value of six thousand dollars so then we go to uh, a commercial it's uh, crazy ernie's electronic store and this is Ackroyd playing an electronics salesman who is slashing prices in one of them old old timey 70s i'm slashing prices because i'm crazy ad this one though the tv is marked down from 700 bucks to 52 cents crazy ernie is so crazy because he's not crazy ernie he's actually crazy frank and crazy ernie took off with crazy frank's girlfriend and he's trying to empty the entire store before ernie returns as far as updates concerned meh 
But as far as this commercial was concerned, this was Aykroyd faster than he's ever been. Hilarious premise. Really, really liked this one and actually watched it about oh, probably 20 times to try to keep up with what Aykroyd was saying. So where are you guys at with Update and this commercial? Update itself is not much to speak of. Didn't really get too many of the jokes. So, you know, not offensive. I'm sure it was better at the time. Uh, I don't like anything that even with presidents, I don't like anything that pokes fun at like their kids. But it was a pretty harmless joke. So no harm there. Yeah, the update itself, I agree with you. Meh. But I also agree, Ackroyd did a great commercial. Almost too fast, but it was impressive how quick he could go. I think only watching it once, a few of the jokes may have flew by. Just mirrored sentiments from me here. Uh, I did enjoy Ackroyd. I liked him not being the guy and just being a crazy person. I thought that was a nice little turn. And uh, he, he brought that energy. He brought the crazy character, which I always appreciate. I want to make sure I mention that Jane smelling her fingers at the desk was one of the funniest things I saw on this episode. <laughs> I did also find it weird, too, in Ackroyd's commercial, how I couldn't tell going, you know, putting my mind back 40 years ago, which prices were the real prices for that you know, electronics equipment, <laughs> whether it was the fake stuff that he slashed or the stuff he was actually selling it for. Like, yeah, if you told me you can buy like a speaker in 77 for a thousand bucks, I'd believe you. But if you told me you can buy it for 12 bucks, I'd believe you too. So who knows? Yeah, we really have no concept, eh? And then comes really a low point of season two, let alone the episode. So we have twice in one night, Emily Latella. The bitch thing that she does at the end is back again for the third time. It, this is now the repetition, not her old repetition. It's a new repetition that she's going to call Jane a bitch and Jane is going to give her the works. This must be fun for the live audience. It's at least somewhat Pavlovian. See, the breakdown for me on this is probably like for Jane to be the bad guy picking on poor Emily. And the issue for me is that I agree with Jane. So I'm kind of I don't know if I'm supporting the bully on this, which makes it not funny on top of Emily just being used ad nauseum. I thought she was gone because we had Baba Wawa, and now Baba seems to be gone and Emily's back. I'm really starting to worry about, I know what's coming from Gilda in broad strokes, but I'm really starting to worry that she is going to go through these big, long chunks where it's just one half-decent idea that's repeated to death, and then she just jumps to another one. The future's not looking bright in that sense, because these characters are killing Gilda for me. Yeah, I got to agree. It's I assumed we would see her in Weekend Update this week because they had the sketch where they were talking about what she's going to do on Weekend Update. But I do agree with you 100% in that I was siding with Jane and I almost got, I didn't know this is the third time they've done the same bit with her where she calls her a bitch at the end. But I kind of got excited thinking like, okay, Jane's calling her out. This might be her last appearance. I guess it sounds like that's probably not the case. If only, Chili, if only. Uh, Jane obviously speaking for all of us i don't know if we're supposed to relate maybe we are a little maybe this is a weird torturous level here on s and hell but uh they're killing me with this they're they're not writing new jokes they're just trotting these ham-fisted jokes back out for another cheap laugh i just i think it's really lazy writing and comedy it is no no question about it this is like royal canadian air force shit going on here ouch yeah. That's the harshest criticism of all. <laughs> <laughs> to our American listeners, don't bother looking it up. It was a Canadian comedy show that soon as they'd get a laugh once, the thing played for 20 years. So we now go to Garrett Morris introducing a Gary Weiss film. 
So Garrett comes out to introduce a film about a girl he used to know, and he starts to set a context, and they cut him off. This video is uh, basically a music video uh, for Bob Seger's Night Moves. So there's basically a beautiful model in a bed who gets less and less clothes, and she watches Garrett on TV smoking and casually chatting with someone. Now, <laughs> oh, and then she rips up Garrett's picture. And, but the camera wasn't close enough for me to be 100% sure it was Garrett. Somewhere I read a synopsis, and, and this is how they interpreted the, 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 the story. This is Garrett's ex-girlfriend who's missing Garrett because of his stardom. And the TV images represent both him being on TV and her having to spend her Saturday nights alone. But it also represents her <laughs> dreams of sitting next to Garrett and smoking. Ah, oh, Jesus Christ. I, that's basically what this was shit. Uh, you know, it, the intro where they cut Garrett off might have explained this a bit more. But uh, I mean, the, the woman was absolutely beautiful. I, I love singing that song in a in a in an ironic way. And to see it being used properly is is kind of funny to me. This was bad. I didn't like it. it. I don't don't like it in the context of Saturday Night Live. It might have fit in in 1980s MTV much music, but uh, this sort of shit's got to stop. But it is keeping up with the theme of the shitty Gary Weiss films for the Chili episodes. I will give it that. I'm actually thinking this might be my first or second favorite Gary Weiss film of all the ones I've seen. I mean, the woman's gorgeous. I don't know if it was meant to cut Garrett off when they did. But that got a laugh out of me, and uh, <laughs> this is just a very weird couple minutes. I kept waiting for the joke and waiting for the joke, and then I guess she ripped up the picture of Garrett at the end, where in Garrett, I think it was Garrett, in his defense, looked pretty shredded. Yeah, no, this is very strange. Not the worst thing on tonight's episode. Not the worst thing, no. Certainly uh, not my favorite Gary Weiss film by a mile. A weird format with the music video. This might not come as a surprise to the thousands based on the, the kind of music it is. Uh, I, I hate Bob Seger. It's more dad rock that I'm just not into and can't get into. It just it looked like a weird softcore porno. Like I've seen these production values in the early 90s from, you know, movies that star women named Shannon. <laughs> so we go to a Chiron, and this man hasn't had sex since 1130. Our next sketch is called Little Old Ladies of the Night, and Dan Aykroyd plays a cop named Officer Palantine, who's the host of a show that talks about women who run away to the big city to become prostitutes. An increasing number of these are actually 65 years old and above. Garrett plays a pimp named Snow, who's with two of his prostitutes, played by Gilda and Lorraine, and they're at a bus stop. Gordon shows up and asks for a job. Gilda demonstrates her technique, and Aykroyd is there in the, in the bus station, and uh, he interacts with the camera. Bill Murray plays Dan's partner. Ruth Gordon comes on to Bill Murray. And they arrest her after Bill gives a speech about it being better for her to be arrested. And then Dan brings it home. Now, Dan repeatedly says they're uh, street hustlers turning tricks with Johns to support their pimps. And he gets more intense every time he says it. This, I thought, was kind of enjoyable. Uh, Garrett seemed a little lost at times. Ruth was definitely just going through the motions. Aykroyd was was qu quite funny, getting more and more pissed off, giving those uh, dropping those words. And this kind of marks the first in what uh, Bill Murray calls his second cop phase, where for the next little while, we'll just see Bill Murray having basically glorified extra roles. Enjoyable. The premise was awesome. Execution was, was fair. Yeah, I love the idea 
idea for the old ladies running away to join prostitution rings. Overall, it wasn't too bad. A couple good laughs here. A few people phoning it in. I'll give this solid middle of the road. It's the host for me. Like, I like the material. Like, the sketch had a, a good idea. I really don't like our host this week. I feel like, you know, she had all that energy in the monologue. Can't keep up with the show. Uh, delivering the lines really bad and really bringing the whole thing down for me. Uh, it's distracting. Uh, I find her very unpleasant on screen. So we now go to some more music, and it's uh, Chuck Berry's back with his band and the SNL band, and he plays Memphis, Tennessee. Now, this is my probably my favorite Chuck Berry song, to be honest. Written in 59, hit number six. I love the misdirection that this song uh, gives. I just thought this was another good one. And then he jumps right into Carol, and that's from 1958. This one is a bit more sort of run-of-the-mill Chuck Berry fare, but uh, he does a really good job with it. I don't usually like that song as much as I did, and maybe it's his, his performance. And the band is having a lot of fun getting to do their own little solo bits in here. So this was two songs in one. They're both super short. Um, I really I liked this again. Chuck hit it, uh, hit it for me. Another great performance. I'm not as familiar with Carol, but... He did his two hits. Both of them sounded great. He was clearly having a bit of fun doing it. The audience liked it. The band loved it. Yeah, it was really, really good. And yeah, the uh, the first song, too, I agree with you on the misdirect. I always forget that that's what the song is about. And then when it switches, I'm like, oh, yeah, I like it that much more. I like this okay. It didn't have the heat of the first one, of course. I'm a guy, you know, when you're going to bring out the legends. I'm just not super familiar with Chuck Berry either. So I enjoyed the novelty of that first performance, but uh, it, it had faded by the second one where, um, I don't know, the, the energy faded a little for me and... Yeah, I just didn't like it as much. It's not my kind of music anyway. So our next sketch is The Babysitter, and this one was written by Ann Beats and Rosie Schuster, um, although it feels like another Marilyn Suzanne Miller piece. So Gilda and uh, Ruth Gordon play uh, Penny and Miss Gillies, and Miss Gillies is more than likely named after Gilda's real-life babysitter, Dibby Gillies, who was the inspiration for most of Emily Lotella. So the babysitter turns off the TV because the show that's coming on is a little dirty. This sends Gilda on a stream of questions about the differences between boys and girls and where babies come from. And Mrs. Gillies gives her a bunch of different ways that babies are conceived. Then they just turn the TV back on and Gilda's allowed to watch the, the dirty movie, I guess. Um, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I thought this was Ruth Gordon's best uh, appearance tonight. I thought Gilda was fantastic. This is the Gilda I want to see a bit more of. Uh, I just thought this was really nice, really uh, cute story. And uh, I had a lot of laughs here with, with Gilda's innocence and uh, and, and Miss Gillies' uh, explanations. I enjoyed this. Yeah, this is cute. I mean, there were parts of it that, you know, not a whole lot of laughs in there, but overall... This was the best use of uh, Ruth, I think. And Gilda, you know, she had fun, too, with her part. Overall, not funny, but not offensive. And it had a little bit of a good heart to it, too, I suppose. We're definitely three for three with Gilda. I thought she was fantastic. She plays these characters so well. I'm off with you guys on, on the rest of it. I really think the host is dragging down all the sketches for me. I, I just find her distracting. I find her voice and delivery distracting. You know how we, we speak sometimes about, oh, sometimes they use the host really well. I don't think they're using the host really well in these situations. She's who they got this week. So they're trotting her out sketch after sketch. Uh, but other than the Lotella sketch, I, I, I just find it uh, could be a little more plug and play. It was a cute sketch. 
but I really don't like Ruth. She's she's tanking these for me. Our next bit is a Mr. Bill film from Walter Williams. So Sluggo and Mr. Hands beat up and destroy Mr. Bill and his dog. Sluggo in this one is a magician, and they're going to level levitate him over a bed of poisonous spikes. Um, but they, they just drop him on the spikes, and then they saw him in half. And then they send him to outer space by catapulting him. Gentlemen, I think I can say now, I don't think I like or get Mr. Bill. Yeah, for me, Mr. Bill is a... You see it once, you see it a million times. This one in particular, without having a specific, I don't know, theme. You know, it's not like Mr. Bill's Christmas or Mr. Bill goes on vacation. Not that into it. I mean, I'm not here to tell you I can explain it, but I can tell you that I like it. I do laugh at these Mr. Bill sketches. I did. I was the only one that liked the last one. Seems I'm the only one that likes this one. Uh, I just think it's silly. And quite frankly, I just think the voice is funny. You know, when, when something tragic happens and, you know, we hit that gag, it's fast paced enough to, to keep me laughing at it every time. So I do like the pace. I love how absurd it is. Uh, I, I like that he has a villain. This is a home movie that works for me. So we now go to Ricky Jay and Ricky Jay, you know, actor, uh, consultant. He did so much stuff over the years. Um, but his his main bread and butter was as a, a kind of a magician. And uh, he's a, one of the best sleight of hand artists. And he does a really neat card trick. I've seen some of his stuff over the years. I know him best from his role in season one of Deadwood and, and a few other guest spots here and there. He uh, he gets someone from the audience and he does a cool trick where he turns the two of hearts into the two of clubs when he throws it up in the air then he gets to uh, gets a woman in the audience to pick a number and a whole bunch and out of between one and ten and then he has all the numbers uh, all the cards uh, they all say she picks seven and there's sevens everywhere and a big banner drops that says seven this was really good i mean you know if you're filling time your options are to do something like this and i think ricky j like andy kaufman or a few others that we'll see is, is a good choice to uh, to do that with yeah i'd rather watch this than another repeat of a commercial or you know even at this point i wouldn't have wanted to see another chuck berry so it's good to give somebody a chance to do something a little different i find sleight of hand tricks are always tough to get across in you know on television i mean he was good he was entertaining uh i'm not sure if it fit too well on the show though i agree with chili uh i mean i do like magic i like sleight of hand magic and i like saturday night live when they're trying different things and this was them trying different things so you know i can't kick them about that uh, however, I don't think it fit or worked super well. It messed up the pace of the show. I mean, don't get me wrong, the pace of the show. Listen, I obviously haven't been enjoying the show. So maybe this this was actually a breath of fresh air from the sketches that they're not putting too much effort in this week. But it still didn't work for me. I wouldn't like to see more of this. Our next sketch is The Last Days of Howard Hughes. And when this one come up, I was like, yeah, Chili's back. That's great, because you were here for the uh, last Howard Hughes sketch, sketch Chili. Yeah, with and, the bra? Yeah, the bra one, yeah. And they actually referred to him as a bra designer in the uh, in, in the in, in the intro. Mm -hmm. um, so Lorraine this time plays Howard Hughes. Dan played Howard Hughes the last time. And Dan and Bill are his Mormon overseers. And uh, Garrett is a uh, a projection repair person who is there to repair Hughes's projector so he can watch uh, Flight of the Phoenix, I think it's called, uh, over uh, again because he watches it all the time every day. So Hughes's place is a complete disaster, and uh, Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray pretend to fly Howard Hughes to Vegas by getting at the foot of his bed, shaking his bed, and waving their arms. 
And then Dan gives Garrett a big box of money and says he'll get more each year if he says nothing about what he saw in the room. Uh, This was really disappointing to me because uh, there's a lot you can do with Howard Hughes, and they didn't do so well in this one at all. I thought Lorraine as Howard Hughes was hilarious. Dan and Bill were all in, but the material just wasn't there. Yeah, there wasn't much to the sketch itself. Even Lorraine, I found the makeup was too much. She may as well have been wearing just like the big rubber mask. It kind of took away any type of performance she could have had. It didn't click for me at all. No real jokes when there could have been better. You know, there could have been some more laughs in there. Yeah, disappointing concept. I liked the idea out of the gate. I thought Lorraine playing Hughes was a great idea. And she's been really all in with everything she's doing tonight. She did Barbara. She's doing this. You know, so lots of opportunities for her to get out there and show her stuff. And she's showing it, but they didn't write any jokes for her. So uh, as much as I might enjoy watching her do things, I wish they had more snap to them. So we go to the world of adventure, and this was written by Dan Aykroyd and Tom Davis. So it's the debut of E. Buzz Miller, uh, a new Aykroyd character. And he hosts a show with uh, Ruth Gordon playing Clara Minter, who's an anthropologist. So she brings back some films she got from Africa. And they actually show the film, and it involves a bunch of uh, tribeswomen dancing topless. And Buzz loves the film because the women are dancing topless. This was short. The gag was somewhat understated, and I don't even know if the audience picked up on what Aykroyd's character was really into. This is pure Aykroyd sleaze, um, and Buzz Miller will come back stronger. So here's a few points about the sketch that I, I sort of picked up on. First of all, in SNL canon, uh, E. Buzz Miller is the first cousin of Irwin Mainway. Buzz Miller is actually based on a real guy that Aykroyd and Tom Davis met on vacation named E. Buzz Miller. And he was basically taking photos of topless natives and selling them to North American tourists. And uh, also, too, um, Miller refers to Africa as the dark continent, and 48 years ago, Mintor corrects, saying that it's a prejudicial term. But people have really been sleeping on this. Only two weeks ago, I heard someone refer to Africa as the dark continent. So uh, take a lesson from uh, from E. Buzz Miller's guest. Not a fan. The part that was being performed live, I didn't really get too much of a kick out of. The clips themselves, I was like, this just kind of seems a little 1980s racist, the whole setup to it. I don't know. I was not a fan of the sketch at all, and I... I I agree. This is another good concept, and Dan is out here giving it uh, giving it his all. But I, I found that despite the good concept, there's no there's no zingers. There's lots of ideas this week, but uh, there's not a lot of the little things that can make a sketch good. It's like they had a broad characterization of a couple of things, and they were like, okay, let's just run with it for now. Uh, so I, I find this sketch, like many others on the show, just slight on the details. It's a ridiculous character, but we all have that friend that, you know, sees boobs everywhere or, or whatever, you know, like <laughs> I remember a, 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 an acquaintance of mine, a guy I used to work with, like that's all he was interested in. And, and one time we were watching a, a woman, just a, you know, normal woman walk across the street and she slipped on the ice and her pants fell down quite a bit and her her butt was sticking out and you know he was like nice you know <laughs> that's what buzz miller reminds me of you know <laughs> that, that's all these guys see right you know the guy in junior high that's like turned on by the sex ed movie you know so our next bit is mr mike and this of course written by michael o'donohue Mr. Mike calls in Gilda as Fifi has made because there's dust on his flamingo. He tells her to climb on his lap so he can tell her about Willie the Worm. And Willie the Worm was a worm that got run over by a truck, and he was unable to crawl. 
after years of hard work and uh, rehabilitation, Willie could crawl again. And while showing off his crawling skills to the doctor, he got run over by a big truck and died. Fifi loves the story. And O'Donohue says it's easy to laugh at yourself, but the hard thing to do is to laugh at someone else. These are these are a lot of fun. They're quick. They're they're goofy and they're getting more absurd, like French made because there's dust on a flamingo just cracked me up. This worked for me as well. Uh, I'm a I'm a fan of this guy, as you know. It was nice to see him uh, pull a French maid into his lap and not a young Jodie Foster. Uh, that was a bit of a relief and a hell of a final line. Really good writer, this fella. Yeah, this is a nice bit of a reprieve in this episode, actually. I haven't seen his other stuff. It was weird, but um, this episode, it was refreshing. So we now go to a Chiron, and uh, it goes out in the audience, to a man who was brought here under guard. The gentleman sitting next to him is renowned murderer O.J. Simpson. Did you guys notice Juice sitting there? No, no. Yeah, right next to him. Yeah, I assume this man was a Buffalo Bill. He was a, a you know, stocky lad. But yeah, that was OJ was sitting next to him. I guess I should say renowned alleged murderer OJ Simpson. So we now go to the good nights and Ruth Gordon is there and she says she loved doing what she did. Again, lots of energy in this uh, in this old lady. Um, she thought uh, some changes might have made it a little more entertaining, like if the audience got to see her her bare ass as she changed. Security, Gilda, Dan, and Bill Murray help Belushi to the stage because Belushi is in his wheelchair. But I think there's more than his knee keeping him from standing. And then Ackroyd holds him up, which <laughs> might be uh, metaphoric for the rest of their career together. Um, but, I mean, all, all jokes aside, everyone seems really pleased with this. Uh, and uh, it, it looked like a, a real happy ending for everyone. Well, I'm sure they were happy it- Seemed like Ruth had a good time. I'm sure uh, yeah, they probably have a lot of respect for her. And maybe they're just happy that she got through it and enjoyed herself. Frank, I'm happy we got through it. Uh, me, at least. Uh, not whistling Dixie, uh, but pretty funny observation there as well. I, I have nothing to add. Blessed relief. And also relieved were the cast and Ruth Gordon, because contrary to what Chili said, they had no respect for Ruth Gordon, and she didn't like. <laughs> she didn't like them. The week was fraught with uh, supposed generational problems. She was a writer who tried to make lots of suggestions that they didn't like, and immediately after she wrapped, she put on her coat, didn't say goodbye to anyone, and left. She never came back to the show, um, and you know enjoyed her resurgence on tv until she died in 1985 but uh they were happy to see the back of ruth gordon well even what she said at the end she said something along the lines of like well i'm happy with what i did mm-hmm. the way she phrases kind of like she doesn't seem super happy with the way it went she's just happy with what mm-hmm. she did and that may be the case and <laughs> So uh, let's go into our, our epilogue and ratings. So uh, Ruth Gordon, I thought she did pretty well for a woman in her 80s. Bundle of energy. Uh, highlights for me were uh, Lillian Carter and Miss Gillies, the babysitter, um, which was probably her best bit for me. That being said, I wondered, just like Jodie Foster a couple weeks back, I wondered if she was filling the old lady parts that have been sitting on the shelf for a while. This was a weird week. I mean, Chevy's gone. Murray isn't established. Belushi was ostensibly out. Uh, and Garrett was not firing at all tonight. It would have been a good night to have a really strong host, but they just didn't have one. Um, with her difficulty backstage, you know, I, I wonder if Ruth Gordon blocked 
doing parodies of her movies like Harold and Maude or Rosemary's Baby, which might have been really good because, I mean, we've seen O'Donohue, Aykroyd, and Schiller in particular do some really good parody. But I didn't think Ruth Gordon was was a good host, despite a couple of good showings for me. Yeah, I don't think she was much of a host at all. Um, who knows what she was given to work with, but even the stuff she had to work with, I'm sure it's, you know, I'm sure in there, the jokes that were written, there were a few things like with the prostitute sketch and all that, where it felt like there were jokes in there that just weren't being delivered and generational or not as the performer, it's her job to entertain the audience. And she did fine. But if she was say 40 years old, giving the same performance, I think we'd all probably be a lot harsher on her. Um, I mean, I'm pretty harsh on her. I think she is one of, if not the worst host that the show has had so far. This is up there with like Karen Black and that other crazy lady, uh, Louise Lasser. Really just very bad, knows better, is an actress. And you know what? To, to that point, though, when we say knows better, like I'm saying she knows better. I don't know. We didn't talk about it. But based on the goodbye, you know, maybe she does does feel like she went out there and was like, shit, I did my best. But what a piece of trash this just was. Uh, I guess we'll never know. But, you know, whether it was she was having a bad time, whether it was they were having a bad time with her, no chemistry, doesn't mix. What a friggin' surprise, Lauren, that an 80-something-year-old wasn't a good fit for your hot Saturday night show. In time, we're going to see some more 80-year-olds and 80-pluses do this, and uh, I, I don't recall it going as, as poorly as this one did. I, I, I It's funny, I agree with you, Matt, on 90%, but there's a few shining lights, I think, that are sticking out for me that, that didn't stick out for you. I think that's the big difference for us. So the music, to me, it was this was a greatest hits for Barry, but he gave it. I mean, this is not like... A lot of others will see do their greatest hits where they're just going through the motions. Incorporating the SNL band in was an awesome touch, especially as we get more used to those guys as well. He did all his tricks and then some, and he got three songs. Two were smashed together, but I, w- I was fine with that. And of the three, he did the big one, Johnny Be Good. He did my favorite, Memphis, Tennessee, and he did a strong version of one that I'm not particularly fond of, Carol. I, I couldn't be happier with his performance. Now, just to epilogue for Barry, he uh, chilly alluded to it. He definitely had his demons, and some of them are quite uh, disturbing. His contributions to rock and roll, however, are, are pretty cemented. Um, career-wise, he continued to do the uh, nostalgia thing, and he's one of these people, you know, that the nostalgia circuit needed. One of these big headliners, like Chuck Berry, even more so than like your Jerry Lewis or your your Little Richards. His presence really bumped up tickets. It's kind of like. Hulk Hogan or or like William Shatner going to a, a Star Trek convention or Hulk Hogan at a wrestling show. Barry died in 2017 at the age of 90. His last album, Chuck, came out shortly after his death. It was great. I thought he was excellent. It was what you would want from Chuck Berry. And even though he wasn't that old at the time, I'm picturing him as being like an 85-year-old man while doing the performance. But it was great. Good performance. I like the fact that it was... It sounds ridiculous saying it, but even nowadays, just watching somebody actually performing live is nice to see. He's great. A plus. Loved it. I didn't love it as much as you guys, but I mean, I certainly enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I enjoy most of the music on Saturday night. Uh, It was, you know, I'm fine with Legends coming out on a Greatest Hits tour. They uh, kept it short. He did his bits. He got he got his spots in, so to speak. And you can't fault it in that regard. So I would say overall, it is a thumbs up for the music this episode for me. We don't get three thumbs up on music very often. No. 
So, uh, gentlemen, what was your worst bit of the night? The, the, I'll start the Latell, the fucking Latella sisters, Emily and our host being her sister uh, instead of, as we mentioned, her significantly older whatever. Just uh, a void for me. I hated it. Yeah, I'm going to almost lump two of them together because they were going to be tied, but they were one right after the other would be the same thing. The uh, Latella sketch followed by the Dino De Laurentiis interview. If I had to choose between the two of them, though, I'd say the interview was probably worse because at least the old lady sketch had a form of premise beyond let's have one of our characters interview another character and they could just mumble for 10 minutes. So, yeah, worst sketch Mm. is the uh, Dino De Laurentiis interview. For me, this is tricky because of my own ground rules. The worst for me is probably like Emily Latella existing twice in one show. But for me, I, I want it to be about like a full segment that I hate the most. So, and I did kind of enjoy the first one. The second worst for me was the Marines commercial, but it's a repeat and I won't pick a repeat. So the thing that I, I wound up giving it to was Gary Weiss's night moves thing. It just, <laughs> it stopped the show dead. I mean, there is a place for these videos, but it's not Saturday night live. And them cutting off Garrett kind of turned me off as well because the guy doesn't get much to do. So what was your best, fellas? I would say easily the best part of the show for me was the Chuck, well, were the Chuck Berry performances. If I had to give it to either, I'd give it to the first one. As far as best uh, sketch, I'd probably give it to the Barbara Streisand bit. And that's not even so much for the writing or what the song was about, but just entirely for Lorraine's performance. Whew, very tough indeed. My favorite sketch of the night. Damn, I guess that's mine too. I, I loved Lorraine in it. I thought it had unique production. I thought uh, the the jokes in it had thought. They didn't all land for me. And some of them might have been a bit mean-spirited, but, uh, you know, there was ambition, there was thought, there was effort, there was a great performance, and that's more than I can say for the rest of the show. I really feel like I watched a different show than you guys. <laughs> I actually thought this episode had uh, quite a bit of goodness. I like the babysitter bit. I like the Tom Snyder bit. I like the Barbara Streisand thing, but I'm going with Crazy Ernie's. Ackroyd was faster and more manic than usual, and uh, unlike his more surreal bits, I could actually see this being sort of a plausible situation in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going with crazy Ernie's commercial. So who's your star of the night? Lorraine Newman for me, uh, on top of Babs. I thought she had a uh, memorable uh, attempt at Hughes, and I really liked her as the prostitute. She's always pretty good as the reporter. Uh, I, I just feel her presence was felt wherever she showed up, and we needed it. I think for me, I'm going to give it to uh, Ackroyd on this one, just because I, I didn't think that he was great in anything, but he was probably the best in every sketch he was in. Not that he was great, but nobody else is really stepping up to where he was at. Yeah, I, I also went with Ackroyd, Chili. It, it was tough. I almost went with Lorraine, but Ackroyd Snyder was good. I think he actually kept that sketch on track as much as it could. The crazy Eddie, crazy Frank thing I loved, um, and I really liked him as Officer Palantine. And I, he's really been carrying these shows a lot lately. He's really shining now that Chevy's gone, to the point that I'm almost hoping other people start to step up a little bit. But uh, but I'm definitely going with Ackroyd again. So overall, Ruth Gordon, I thought, was okay. They used her probably as best as they could. I really liked that there weren't any crazy long sketches in here. 
Um, so that kind of helped keep the pace going. Belushi was barely used. Garrett had a bad night. Lorraine was great. And Gilda and Jane were solid. I thought Aykroyd was kind of on fire, actually. Um, and I loved the music. The bad stuff for me was the really bad stuff was all the pre-taped stuff. Uh, Gary Weiss, Mr. Bill, the Marines commercial. I liked having Ricky Jay in to fill in some time. That was a good idea rather than other options. And he'll go down sort of in the books more as like the Andy Kaufman uh, rather than like Billy Crystal's performance or Valerie Braunfield or that's none talent show if you want to go way back. All things considered, I, this is going to shock you guys, but I was really happy with this episode and I gave it a 7 out of 10. I gave it a very generous, in my opinion, 4 out of 10. And that's only because if Chuck Berry was a lesser performer, this would have easily been in the twos based on just the acting side of things. But Chuck really brought it up. I thought there were some good ideas. I mean, Dan was really good in this episode. He does carry the show a lot, like uh, you guys mentioned. Uh, Lorraine, already my star of the night. I thought she was really good in some things. They tried The Magician. It didn't work. Uh, The music was just there for me. I mean, it was good. It was fine. But uh, there's really, it's really hard to overcome a bad host. You know, Ralph Nader was a terrible host. This is another terrible host. And when you get it wrong, it really drags down the show. Uh, She really sucked the life out of everything she was in for me. I found her distracting, shitty delivery, unfunny. Uh, My grade matches Chili's. I gave this a 4 out of 10. So Matt's four and Chili's four and my seven actually put this up to a five out of uh, five out of ten. Ten and the Internet Movie Database gave this one a seven point three out of ten, actually tying it with the Nader episode. And this one is ranked as of November 2021, the eleventh best of the season and the 211th best to date. So I'm closer to the uh, Internet Movie Database, but but I definitely am watching it with uh, I'm definitely watching it differently than you guys did, because for me to be a seven and you guys to be a four is a huge gulf for us. Yeah, I don't know. I just didn't find much to enjoy. Chili, it's been a delight to have you back again. Um, again, it's for a week one. You you asked for some week ones and this is all luck of the draw right now. But uh, it looks like you got what you, you asked for. Yeah, no, they're just as fun to do as the good ones. So keep them coming. Thanks, Chili. No problem at all. Thank you. So next week, Matt, do you know who we got? Did they announce at the end? Uh, Not that I noticed. I don't know. We've got a football player (laughs) coming, Fran Tarkenton. I see. With Leo Sayer. I I see. Will you be here next week, Matt? I'll be here. I'm here every week, rain (laughs) or shine, traveling all these levels. Yeah, this was a particularly bleak one for you, my friend. Yeah, I didn't like this episode. Uh, And it really drives home. I I didn't realize how important the host was for me, perhaps. Gosh, it's important to me, it seems. Yeah. So we'll be back in about a week with our good buddy Mark joining us again for Fran Tarkenton and Leo Sayer. But until then, we'll be looking for street hustlers turning tricks with their johns to support their pimps here in Essen Hill. 